Hey, once you get a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 15, the fourth in the four biographies of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, By the way, I'm Josh. I'm one of the leaders around here if we haven't met yet. If you missed last weekend, um, we began the first of what will become our annual vision series, something that will continue on into this fall, and then next fall we'll have another one and on into the future, I hope, God willing. Um, And we've been spending this time together already talking about discipleship. You know, the call of Jesus was to become a a Talmudim or a disciple. Or to put it another way, that word Talmudim can be translated an apprentice. The call of Jesus was to become an apprentice of a teacher. And such an apprentice, should they accept the invitation of Jesus, would incur three life goals. The first was to be with Jesus. The second was to become like Jesus. And then finally, the third goal of the disciple was to do what he did. Now, for the following few weeks, I want to sort of explore each of these ideas in further detail, beginning tonight with this idea of what it means to be with Jesus. You guys ready? Feeling sharp? That's Mike, was that you? Yes. Sounded very formal. All right. All right, let's begin by reading this story in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. Or did I say 1 or 5? What did I tell you guys earlier? Did I say 15? Surely that's got to be the right one, right? Then John gave this testimony. That's beginning in verse 32. Okay, go back to chapter 1. Look, I teach the Bible for a living. It doesn't mean that I know where everything is at all times. Technology is our, you know, our help and our downfall. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? (laughs) They said, Teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, you'll see. (laughs) So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that what, had John, what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, the Christ, or the Anointed One. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Now, notice 
how down to earth this particular story reads. I remember uh, watching this made-for-TV Jesus movie as a kid, and I saw this, uh, this story depicted pretty faithfully, and I thought to myself, wow, this must be some irreverent new depiction of this laid-back, casual Jesus. I, it was hard for me to imagine Jesus with such brevity. And then I went to uncover the text, and I found it there on the page almost exactly as it had unfolded on the screen, and I thought, well, dang, that's pretty cool. Um, this idea of Jesus being like, eh, what do you want? Oh, come follow me. You'll see. Jesus' invitation in the story is basically, come hang out, be with me, and see for yourself what I'm up to, one that becomes contagious among his followers. The disciples, in awe of Jesus, start to say to one another, hey, come be with me. You'll see. You'll see what he's like. And for this reason, the story sort of glows in the text for its telling of this warm, inviting Jesus who very openly welcomes the company of would-be followers. But even so, you and I are obviously not privy to the physically present Jesus today. This begs the question, if this is the way that Jesus invites his disciples... And if Jesus calls followers that they might, in the words of Mark, that they might be with him, how does this work for you and I? Turn over to John 14. In the story we're about to read, as Jesus sort of approaches the time of his execution, he begins to speak of a time when he'll no longer walk with the disciples up and down the dirt roads of Israel. Let's read John 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me... Keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That phrase, uh, another advocate, it sort of escapes a simple translation. It could be read, another like me, or maybe more literally, another one of me. Um, so who is this mysterious another one of Jesus? The text identifies him as the Spirit. Look down at verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So the way that you and I enjoy the company of, and the closeness of Jesus, how we hang out with Jesus, as it were, is through a relationship with his spirit. This means that the first and primary goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is the baseline of discipleship. It is step one. And if you remember last week, uh, we mentioned that Jesus himself used an interesting sort of metaphor to describe this relationship. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because the, world I, the word I have spoken to you remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, 
and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my what? Disciples. Jesus' metaphor to describe the way in which we are with him is that of a branch abiding or acting in accordance with the vine from which it grows. In a single small teaching, Jesus uses the word mino or abide ten times. So it's an important idea, apparently. And his point is that the disciple is to come into the presence of the Father and stay there. And if you're still wondering what that means, we're talking about constantly being in two places at one time. So you're eating your breakfast, and you're in the presence of the Father. You're at the gym, apparently people do that. You're at the gym, and you're in the Father's presence. You're at the movie theater, and you're in the Father's presence. You're in conversation with a friend, and you're in the presence of the living God. Answering emails, your morning commute, your 9 to 5, dealing with your insane toddlers, all while simultaneously in the Father's presence. And Paul called this sort of thing prayer without ceasing, which is a lovely way of putting it. Our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation. Um, the medieval monk, Brother Lawrence, called it the practice of the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence's famously documented pursuit of constant connection to God in this small book, The Practice of the Presence of God, is this fascinating work. You guys should check it out because uh, in the 15th century, Brother Lawrence, he lacked the education to become a cleric, so he served instead as a dishwasher in a French uh, monastery in Paris. And there he devoted his entire life to the practice of the presence of God. And so consumed was the man by God's sustained intimacy that people began to come from all over Europe to watch him in his kitchen as he reveled in the Father's companionship. And after Brother Lawrence died, his letters were compiled into a small volume in which he wrote this. The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Can you imagine? I, I want this. And I, I imagine that I'm not alone in that. But notice... This man, who happened to know so much about the presence of God, who knew this well himself, he described it as something that requires practice. I used this quote last week, but it's so dang good that we all need to read it again. In fact, you'll probably read it a bunch of times. It's really long, but here it is again. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, He will become the pole star of our inward beings. Dallas Willard's point beautifully said, is that living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the presence of God all day, every day, doesn't simply happen. 
and nor will it suddenly occur if you read your Bible every single day, if you attend church all the time. It still takes practice. In fact, I would argue that in the tumultuous chaos of the hyperactive, over-busy, technology-addicted, overstimulated, emotionally immature world in which you and I live, this sort of pursuit requires more intentionality than it ever has. Because, you know, it stands to reason washing dishes uh, in a monastery affords one just a bit more time for this sort of practice. Uh, I, I'm not to... Uh, be presumptuous about Brother Lawrence's job or anything, but uh, even so, that doesn't mean that it can't be done for you and I in the busyness of our lives in the modern world. And this is where the spiritual disciplines, or what we will call the practices of Jesus, come in. These are essential training methods in experiencing the full life of discipleship. There's no official list of the spiritual disciplines per se, but seven of the most important and frequently cited practices are silence and solitude, getting time away to be with God as Jesus did almost constantly, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, living in community, Sabbath keeping or resting well, the Sunday gathering, what you and I are doing right now, and simple living. Now, there's all sorts of lists. This, is, this thing is not exhaustive. And we'll talk more about things like selflessness and study and service and submission, forgiveness, hope, all those things more in the weeks to come. But the reason I favor the term, the practices of Jesus over spiritual disciplines, is that for many, spiritual, at least in the late modern sense, implies something that isn't also physical and pragmatic. But you'll notice that these practices are carried out by the mind and by the body. They're habits to be accomplished in order that we might orient our whole person around God. And it seems as though in the American church that the practices of Jesus have become all but obsolete. Uh, in fact, I'm learning more and more that very, very few followers of Jesus practice things, these things on a regular, ongoing basis, especially uh, young folks in their 20s or so, at least in my experience, in part... I think because discipline itself is a tough sell in the modern world, you know. Uh, as a culture, we often value personal autonomy and the ability to do whatever we like above all else. But another reason may be that we misunderstand what the practices of Jesus are all about in the first place. Consequently, they have been largely written off as uh, legalistic or, you know, if you know the church vernacular, or sort of uh, works-based righteousness, or, oh, these people are trying to earn God's favor or earn their salvation, however you want to describe it, and then they're easily cast aside. But what I want us to realize is that the spiritual disciplines or the practices of Jesus are all just a means to an end, and that end is to be with Jesus. These are ancient practices, time-tested all the way back to the time of Jesus and the early church as effective, even necessary means of presenting ourselves before God, where we sort of adjust the chaotic frequency of our own lives so that it begins to harmonize with the Spirit of God. And in doing so, we begin to experience life to the fullest. Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles one more time to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 in the New Testament. Next week, we'll begin the conversation about what it means to become like Jesus. But for now, uh, it behooves us this evening to have a bit of a preview. Now, I want you guys to pay close attention to what Paul is doing with Jesus' teaching from John 15, the, the thing about the vine and the branches, because there's all sorts of allusions to that teaching throughout this passage. And what, watch how Paul 
takes this idea of abiding to the next level. Let's read Galatians 5, beginning with verse 16. So I, Paul, say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is an incredible vision of what it means for the inner disposition to be transformed and made over into the image of Jesus. And yet, many have taken this very passage and sort of twisted it into a list of commands on how to be more virtuous. That is, you should be more loving, and you should be more joyful, and be more peaceful. But that doesn't really work. You know, joy and love and peace are often not at the mercy of the will at all, but they're an outworking of an inner disposition, meaning you can't exactly clench your fists and try really hard and then become more loving. Of course, you can behave in a loving way uh, via effort, at least for a little while, I hope, geez, but you can't really bend your will so that you suddenly become a more loving person by default. And in this message, Paul doesn't command anyone to be more loving or more joyful or more peaceful. In fact, only one command shows up in the entirety of the passage, and it's stated at the beginning and repeated at the end. Walk in the Spirit. And then finally in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or, to put it in Jesus' words, abide in the vine. We may not be able to be more loving or peaceful or patient, but we can present ourselves to the Spirit of God again and again and again in vulnerability to invite His reshaping work from the inside out. And notice Paul's metaphor is of a fruit tree. I mean, the guy's just straight up stealing from Jesus. He has no shame whatsoever. Uh, and, and the branches of, say, like an apple tree or whatever your, your fruit tree of choice is, um, they produce fruit by abiding in the vine, so to speak. In me you will bear much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. As we live in a constant state of connectedness to God, and time carries on, we become transformed from the inside out to become more like Jesus. Or to put it in Paul's language, we bear fruit. Now, pause for a moment, because I realize any of you uh, pragmatists in the room are, are probably becoming increasingly frustrated as you wonder, but how exactly do you do that? Um, how in the world do you keep in step with the Spirit, or abide in the vine, or practice the presence of God in a world of, of social media, and text messages, and a job, and a hobby, and a two-year-old, or whatever it is, 
And I think the answer is to live like Jesus. And here's what I mean. I realize that's a broad statement. To experience the life of Jesus, one must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And this is, of course, true of anything. You guys know this already. Your life is a byproduct of your lifestyle. The life of an artist demands an artist's lifestyle. The life of a parent demands a parent's lifestyle, and so on down the list. But by lifestyle... I mean your rituals and your routines, the, the way that you spend your time, especially the way that you spend your money, the way that you organize your day and prioritize your calendar. Or to put things in business jargon, your system is perfectly designed for the result you're getting. So for the disciple of Jesus, think of that line we read earlier, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, said Jesus. And it stands to reason that for many of us, and I know myself included, read such a statement with a shade of disbelief. Uh, I certainly don't feel peaceful. I, I feel stressed. I feel anxious. I feel caught up in a storm of the chaos that is my life. So how does one actually get at this alleged peace that Jesus has on offer? And I think the answer is by following Jesus, or put another way, by basing your lifestyle on the template established by Jesus himself. Remember this, Jesus is the example of what it means to be God. Yes, absolutely, Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of what God is like, but Jesus is every bit as much the example of what it means to be a human as well. An aspect of Jesus' identity, or his calling, if you like that language, is, uh, was to show the world the best way to be a human being. So read the Gospels. What do you see? Jesus was never in a rush, sometimes frustratingly so. Um, he was unbusy, or at least, uh, if you like the term better, he was unhurried. Um, Jesus lived in community constantly. Um, he took it uh, he presupposed that his life would unfold in community. And at the same time, he also spent a great deal of time alone. He got up early so that he could pray. Sometimes he spent entire nights in prayer. He stepped away from his disciples so that he could process his feelings with God and to God with honesty and with vulnerability without censorship. Um, Jesus slept which I think is a funny thing to notice. In fact, if you know the stories, the disciples have to wake him up in the middle of seemingly life-threatening scenarios sometimes because the guy's sleeping for some reason on a cushion, the story says. But of course, you know, who wants to sleep on just the bottom of the boat? Um, Jesus sets entire days aside for rest and for worship. He lives in radical simplicity. I mean, geez, no possessions to speak of at all. In fact, when uh, Jesus has to do illustrations about money, he has to ask someone else for a coin. Um, and he was thus unencumbered by money or possessions. He was undistracted by them. Jesus was not racked with discontent over the things that he wanted to buy or the things that he wanted to sell. There was no materialism whatsoever. And somehow, in the midst of this mission that Jesus had, this very important, very demanding and complex mission that was plagued by persecution and ridicule, threats against his life, sometimes active attempts to kill him on the spot, Jesus was at peace by his own admission. Many of us who claim to follow Jesus are over busy. And I'm talking about my... So, no, I'm talking about you guys. I'm not talking about me at all. This is you. I don't know anything about this. Often with things uh, that matter very little, in fact, or, or sometimes with things that matter tremendously, but we are over busy just the same. 
And I know I don't have to bring up the, the smartphone usage lest you guys start rolling your eyes and saying, hey, here we go, old man Porter, at it again with the freaking rant against the phones. But good grief, so many of us are absolutely pouring what little precious time we have down the toilet by wasting minutes and hours of every single day staring down at what amounts to mostly nothing at all. And that's, that's not the only thing that's driving us insane. Many of us can't shake this demon of materialism, and I know most of us don't think of ourselves as materialistic, but we buy way more than we need, and we want even more, and we're not satisfied with what we have. We're forever dissatisfied by both what we do and do not have. The stuff that we own ends up owning us. We don't rest. We don't sleep enough. We don't turn off our phones. We don't slow down. We cram our days with asinine distractions. And we pause only long enough to ask, hey, why aren't we experiencing this peace that Jesus himself promised us? I sat down recently with a friend who has been helping me sort of organize my work here at the church. And she said, list out everything that you do during the week. Let's just get like a, a starting point there. And when we'd completed the list, she looked at it and she's like, are you happy? Are you a happy person? Because I would hate everything and everyone. Um, and then I, there I was sort of wondering, man, why am I so stressed all the time and anxious and depressed and angry and frustrated and short-tempered with my wife and my kids? And then I was like, oh, why indeed? You know, because I am not living the way of Jesus. I am not adopting his template for humanity and what it means to be an adjusted human being. Dallas Willard, again, puts it this way. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. That is to say, we all want, even if you say that you do not, human beings by design want a life of love or of joy or of peace, what Jesus called the life that is truly life or life to the fullest. We actually ache for it in our innermost person. We crave it. And yet, we cannot seem to take the necessary measures in order to see that which is available to us made manifest in our own lives. And many of us are simply sitting around waiting for such a thing to just happen. And on such a technique, writer William Paulsell writes, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. Now, listen to me for a moment. None of this is meant as uh, a guilt trip. Uh, I am absolutely in this with you. In fact, typically, you know, when you're writing a teaching and I'm studying throughout the week and I find areas where my own life is totally out of sync with the thing that I have to teach on, I have to stop and be like, okay, well, what necessary measures do I have to begin to not be a total hypocrite on Sunday and at least be able to say, I'm inviting you into something that I have begun to try myself. 
And honestly, this was one of those uh, things. There's been uh, seasons of my life where I feel like I've uh, done fairly well and seasons where I've done fairly poorly. And, and recently, um, uh, I've done uh, very poorly. And even this week, ramping up for this teaching, I've just felt like, man, what a, what a fraud, what an utter fraud, because I am this person. I feel over busy, stressed out, anxious, and like I can't find my footing in my own life, and yet I know what it takes to make corrective measures and feel so caught up in this current that I make excuses to, as to why I have not begun. So I, I'm with you guys on this. If you feel like, oh man, this is tough, you know, I also have a schedule to keep. I, have a, I also have a smartphone, you know, I have a family, I have small children. I understand that this isn't easy and that for many of us, this is like, oh, well, I haven't even begun this at all. If you're like well into this, heck yeah. Keep, keep up the great work. We need more of you around. For many of us, it's like, whoa, yeah, that's, that's convicting. Um, but I want to tell you guys, uh, the lifestyle of Jesus is the way to the life of Jesus. Meaning, all of Jesus' life was the overflow of an inner disposition that was shaped by abiding in the vine or practicing the presence of God. So, to end tonight... I understand this sounds overwhelming. Calm down, relax, breathe for a second. I have two pieces of practical advice, one for right now and one for long-term change. First is the long-term. Simplify your life. <laughs> Pare down things to what matters. Get better at saying no, cut away everything else, and begin to replace it with the practices of Jesus. And we'll talk more about them all throughout the vision series. For now, think of that list of practices that we talked about early, earlier. Silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, life and community, simple living, the Sabbath, the gathering. Think about that list of practices and consider adding one of them on at a time. Most of you are at least on one of them because here you are right now. Uh, spend an accommodating time on one at a time, maybe silence and solitude, and then move on to en enriching your prayer life and so on. Build more into your life over the coming years. Some of you are probably like my wife, uh, Abby, and you're type A, and you're thinking, oh, yes, a list. I've got it. I'll have this done in a couple of months, and I'll hand it in to you. You'll see it'll be great. Um, but believe me when I say, uh, this is a bit more difficult than it sounds, <laughs> unless you think that sounds totally uh, untenable altogether. It's not that difficult, but it is a bit more difficult than it sounds. There's an ebb and a flow. Uh, there's trial and error. There's learning and relearning as life shifts and it evolves. There was a time in my life where I felt like the spiritual disciplines were so within my uh, everyday common, commonality of my life that I was like, this is awesome. I've, I've made it past the hurdle. And then I had a kid, and it was like everything was shot all apart, and I had to start over again from square one. So it's kind of the way it works. It, it takes years of, you know, you guessed it, practice. On many of these, uh, even so, uh, I've come a long way, and then others, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I haven't even begun that journey yet. I have a long way to go. And we're going to figure this out together as a community. Beginning in January, we will begin the practices of Jesus together as a church. We'll work together th through them here on Sundays, and then you guys will take them back to your communities every single week uh, and month to practice them out uh, in the context of relationships with one another, figuring out what it means to follow Jesus together. But right now, tonight, my advice 
is to plan setting aside time for silence and solitude beginning tomorrow morning. Now listen to me on this. This is a simple exercise that I guarantee every single one of you can accommodate. It requires only 10 minutes of your 24-hour day. You can do it, believe me. Um, every morning, wake up, make your coffee or whatever your ritual is or um, things you have to get out of the way, obligations, whatever. Structure your day the way that works and then go into a quiet room or space. Do not bring your phone. Turn it off. Leave it in the other room. And just take 10 minutes to simply be with Jesus. Ask your community to hold you accountable. Remind one another and then ask them how it went. Hey, did you do what we said we were going to do? Why or why not? You know, be gracious with one another. Every morning, 10 minutes, just sit there and be with Jesus. Sometimes, in my experience, in these moments of 10 minutes or an hour, whatever it might be, I've heard incredible things uh, from God's Spirit. I feel like God actually has spoken to me in a time of just sitting there to be with Jesus. It's incredible. I've been moved to tears, the whole thing. It's amazing. More often than not, I, I spend time fighting off the distraction and the stress of, of my life long enough to remember that, wait, I am actually in God's presence. That's incredible. Other times, uh, there's simply a sense of satisfaction that like, wow, I can do this if I want. God is available to me at all times, and that is incredible. Uh, in a famous interview with Mother Teresa, Dan Rather asked about the things that she said to God during prayer. You know, if you have a few minutes with Mother Teresa, why not ask her how she prays? That might be helpful. And Mother Teresa replied that when she prayed, she says nothing. She just listens. And slightly confused, Dan Rather was like, oh, okay, well, then what does God say? And Mother Teresa answered, nothing. He listens. And then... She, she paused for a moment, and realizing his confusion, she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Um, for many of us, such a state of calm, an eye in the storm of our lives before God, comes as a surprise that that would be something that God would like to enjoy with us, his presence. Um, you know, a Abby and I have often exasperated one another with, over the difference in how we experience and understand one another's love and affection if you're married. You know the whole story. There's like 10 books on it, whatever. Um, though I wish it weren't so, this is quite embarrassing to, uh, for me personally. There's a part of me that like craves outward words and gestures of encouragement and affirmation. And without them, I often feel unloved. Um, but uh, Abby is not that way at all. She values time together much in the same way that I value uh, words of affirmation or however you want to describe them. And recently she told me that some evenings, she would like to do little more than simply sit together in one another's presence without some sort of formal plan or a thing to do. It could be wasting time. She mentioned ice cream, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I can do that. Um, the idea is just, you know, I'm here, you're here. Everything else can just stop or slow down for a little while. And believe it or not, practicing the presence of God is the very same idea. I'm here, you're here. Everything else can just slow to a stop for a little while. And eventually, this becomes our innate disposition. Even in the frantic sweep of our lives to recognize I'm here and you're here. And I'm sure I understand we pray in a great many ways. We petition God for things. We, we air our grievances. We lament. We ask for things. We, we worship. We talk. We listen. There's a spectrum of how we talk to and relate to God. And we also 
sit there in order to simply be with Jesus. And it isn't some sort of tantric meditation. You don't empty your mind. You fill it with the things of God, and you remember his closeness and his proximity. And you can try that tomorrow morning, 10 minutes, when you wake up. Slow down, quiet the frantic pace of your life, put away all the distractions, and simply be with Jesus. Practice. I'm here. You're here. Everything else can just slow to a stop for a little while. With that in mind, let's pray and ask the Spirit to come.